0: All right. So the way this series is going to break down, there isn't one specific like text we're going through. It is kind of a shotgun approach. There's going to be a lot of scriptures cuz the nature of the study, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, but let me let me begin by asking the question, what is your ultimate purpose in life? If you were to take a step back and just think this through, which it's fitting we start this series at the beginning of a new year, what is your ultimate purpose in life? It's an important question because the way you answer the question of your purpose in life determines the trajectory of your life. It'll determine what you do and why you do it, what you don't do and why you don't do it. And a great place to begin to answer that question is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, we read these words. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus echoes these same words in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. And what it's saying here is that every person, well, specifically in Deuteronomy, that the people of God, Israel, were to love God with the totality of their being. And Jesus picking up on it is saying that those of us who by faith have trusted in him are to love God with the totality of our being. Our ultimate purpose is to love God with all that we are. But I'm not sure if you've ever thought about the fact that in order for us to faithfully pursue this loving of God, it presupposes that we know something of God, that there is a knowledge of God we have, because you can't faithfully love someone if you know nothing about them. So our primary pursuit in life should be an ever-increasing knowledge of God. If the purpose is to love him, then the pursuit is to grow in the knowledge of him. Now here's the thing. That's going to require effort on our part. I wish you could just go to sleep at night, wake up and boom, like you just downloaded all this doctrinal data It's just there, but that's not how it works. We have to put time in. We have to put effort in. We need to put in the work. And lest that sound burdensome, every relationship requires effort to get to know the other person. And if you love the other person, and if you're growing in love for the other person, it isn't a burden, but it's a blessing. You think of a young couple, you know, you go to a college campus, and and they'll sit till two, three in the morning in the common areas, ask, getting to know everything about each other. What's your favorite cartoon? What did you want to be when you grow up? How do you eat your cereal? And it, it, they just love it because they want to know. The more they know. The more they love, and it's the same for us and the Lord. So we have to put in the work, we have to put in the effort, but it's not a a duty that we do without joy. It's a privilege, but it's important. Listen to what it says in First Timothy chapter four, verses fifteen and sixteen. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Do you hear that? Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. Give yourself to it. Persevere. This pursuit of your life to grow in the knowledge of God does not come without resistance. The world, the busyness of life, and your own sin is going to push against this pursuit, but we must be pursuing for this you know one book later in second Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 it says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. And so we see that as we're beginning this, this glorious and long journey of the core doctrines, it's going to take effort on your part. And on my part, if we are truly going to be growing in our knowledge of God, it's going to take consistency. It's going to take grit. And so often we think our Christian life should just be like frolicking through a a field with beautiful flowers. It should just be easy, but but Jesus calls it the narrow path. It's more like you're carrying a, 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 a rucksack on your back and you're marching a narrow path and it takes effort, but to get to that, the top of the mountain to get to the summit, it's glorious. It's worth it. So think about it more as hiking up a mountain face than walking, frolicking through a field. It takes effort, but the view is great. It's also going to require humility on our part. Studying God's word and understanding doctrine is humbling. It's humbling for a couple of reasons. One, the more you study doctrine, the more you realize how much you don't know about God. Your your assumptions of who God is are constantly going to be torn down. Like, I didn't realize that was who God was. I didn't realize that's what he did. I didn't realize X, Y, and Z. So it requires humility because you're, you're confronted with your, your small how small of a view of God you've had up to that point. There's another one, though. It requires humility because the more doctrine you learn, the more your pride wants to show it off. It's really easy to get smug. It's really easy to look at other people who maybe have a wrong doctrinal understanding and be like, look at them. How can you have that belief in God? Wow, do you even read your Bible? So it requires humility because anything we do properly learn of who God is through his word is because the spirit of God has graciously given us understanding. Proverbs 3 verses 5 through 7 tell us, trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. So I just want to make sure we get some groundwork there before we actually even look at this doctrine of the scriptures that we understand that. And let me also say this. The study of doctrine is not simply an intellectual exercise. This isn't just data download for the brain. This is a spiritual act of worship. It requires a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to ask yourself as we start this series is that your desire? Do you desire to grow in your knowledge of God? Not in your knowledge of theology, not in your knowledge of doctrine, but in your knowledge of God. Learning these doctrines should only help to serve to know God for who he is. Don't ever, this is really easy, especially um, as sometimes people are exposed to certain reformed doctrines for the first time. It becomes really easy to fall in love with certain doctrines more than to fall in love with God. So we need to guard our hearts against this. It says in Psalm 73, verse 25, And this, I hope, is our, this is what I want to be kind of our our banner this series. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. This is the heart posture we need to take for what we're about to study. And I wanted to spend a lot of time here because the study of doctrine is glorious but dangerous. Lots of, having been in seminary myself and seeing what it did to me, to be honest, like my wife's online right now. And my wife would tell you, doctrine can destroy you if it's not bathed in prayer and humility. It can make you just a really arrogant individual. You can become a hammer and think everybody's a nail that you just want to hammer down with theology. The study of doctrine needs to lead to a devotion for God. I've seen that happen to a lot of young men in seminary after I graduated that I've worked with as well. Um, I've seen actually a lot of pastors be doctrinal theological giants and devotional raisins all dried up with no life. So let's make sure that doesn't happen for us. Let's, Let's make sure we're praying the whole time we're in these studies, asking God to keep our hearts tender and our minds open. Okay, so let's let's jump in now. We're studying this first doc, this first week, um, as we look at core doctrines. We're going to be looking at what's called special revelation. But before that, let me just define terms. I don't want to assume anything. What do we mean when we use the word doctrine? We use it all the time in churches, but let's get a working definition. Doctor Wayne Grudem defines a doctrine as. What the whole Bible teaches us today about some particular topic. What the whole Bible teaches us today about some particular topic. It could be the Bible. It could be Jesus. It could be um, marriage. It could be finances. What What is the angels, hell, heaven, sin? What does the whole Bible have to say to us today on that issue? That's what doctrine is. And we give ourselves to the study of doctrine for some very important reasons. I've heard some people say, just give me the Bible. I don't need all that theology. I don't need all that doctrine. I'm a Bible alone kind of person. Ask him a simple question. Who's Jesus? Oh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. God, the son took flesh and he's our savior. Congratulations. You just did theology. You just did doctrine. And so everybody is engaged in this process. Um the reason it's important for us to know it is because it helps us know who God is. Doctrine is helps you get to know God. You can see that in Jeremiah chapter 9 verses 23 and 24. Let him who boasts boast in this that he knows and understands me. The more you know about God and what he who he is and what he does the more you can love him. Doctrine is important to study because it helps us make disciples. Jesus says in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So you have to know doctrine to teach doctrine. Making disciples is a doctrinal endeavor. We've been studying the book of Colossians, right? Why do we study doctrine? Because it helps us grow in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, Colossians 1.9. We study doctrine because it helps us identify and correct false teachers and teachings. Titus 1.9. That's a really important one because there's so many false teachings abounding today. You ever hear somebody say, well, the Jesus I believe in wouldn't do that. That's great. I don't care about the Jesus you believe in. I care about the Jesus that's in the scriptures. Let's look at that. And so we have to know who the Jesus of the Bible is. It also helps you have a biblical worldview. And this is the, the heart behind why I did this study. A worldview acts as like a set of, of glasses by which you see the world, the lenses by which you see the world. If my lenses were blue, I would see everything blue. So a biblical, everybody has a worldview, a set of lenses by which they understand the world they live in, how they understand reality. Doctrine helps us have a biblical worldview, right? And this is why it's so important. For example, science doesn't teach you how to interpret scripture. Scripture teaches you how to interpret science. That's a biblical position. Sociology doesn't teach you how to understand race. The Bible does. Psychology doesn't teach you how to understand sexuality. The Bible does. And these, so we have to be doctrinally grounded so that we can have a doctrinal perspective on the world. And doctrine helps do that. You can take up God's word and say, you know what? My friend is having a, my friend's daughter or son is struggling with LGBTQ issues. I need to see what the Bible has to say about that. Let me look at the doctrine of, of human sexuality. And you let that shape your perspective on it listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 12 and 14 through 14. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. but a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, for he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. This is talking about a worldview issue here. We also see this, and we'll be seeing in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. In Colossians three sixteen, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. So this is why we do doctrine. Any, you know, I, I want this to be a little bit more interactive. I know it's being recorded. I don't know if there's any questions. If there is, feel free to put them in the chat bar and we'll answer them in real time because uh, I want this to be uh, more engaging so that you don't have a question and forget it later on. So now let's look at today's doctrine and we can call it revelation, right? There's two types of revelation God gives us. The first kind is general revelation. General revelation is relating to what we can know about God through the observable creation and through our human conscience. General revelation can be seen in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4 say, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. So, what the psalmist is saying here is as you go out into the world and you look up and you look at the sky, you can see God's glory, you can see God's power, you can see God's wisdom, you can see God's order. You can learn certain things about who God is by looking at what he has created. And in Romans chapter 1, we see that there's the human conscience component that we know there are things that are morally wrong. Now, people may skew their conscience, but they still have a conscience that bears witness and testimony. Every human being knows there is such thing as morality. Now, we live in a world where people say, well, I don't believe in morals. Well, okay, why do you lock your door at night? Right? Because you know that people are going to do bad things. People know there's such things as good and evil, right and wrong. And so this is what general revelation is allowing us to do, but it has limits. General revelation cannot tell you about how sinful man can be made right with holy God. General revelation can't tell you what pleases God and what doesn't please Him. General revelation can't tell you what it means like to walk in faith. So we can learn certain things, but not all things. The second thing is called special revelation, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our night. Special revelation is talking about how God has revealed Himself to humanity in a personal and unique manner outside of creation. How God has revealed himself personally to us. Now, especially in the Old Testament and some through the New, we see that there's physical appearances. We see things like at the burning bush, God talking to Moses and appearing there. We see things like God appearing to Abraham in, the, in, in some kind of form, God wrestling with Jacob. We see dreams and visions in the Bible. We see that there are scriptures that are written down. God gave the Ten Commandments. Prophets wrote what God has said. That's why it says, thus says the Lord. And most importantly, God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. These are all called special revelation because you couldn't figure those things out. Those messages God gave us in those ways by looking at his creation. It required something special, unique. Okay. The pinnacle of all of that, though, is the Bible, the written word of God. Those other forms, right? Dreams, visions, physical appearances, all of those have ceased Because as you read your Bible, you realize that when God did those things, he was doing them to authenticate what his message was. But the fullness of God's message has been preserved for us in the Bible. So you don't need a fresh word. We don't need dreams and visions. We don't need miracles today in the sense of people having the gift to perform miracles. Because all of those things are pointing to validate, to authenticate God's message to the world of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to focus on this here, the Bible. It's in God's word that he has decided to reveal everything we need to know who he is, what he expects of us, and what he's done for us. You and I need nothing outside of God's word to know who God is, what he expects of us, and what he's done for us. There's this new age spirituality that wants to get itself in the church, and I want to strongly warn you against that. No. Chain yourself, shackle yourself to the Bible, to God's word, because that's how God speaks to us today. So let's talk about the Bible a little bit. Um, I know some of you have had especially Catholic backgrounds, Catholic, some of you have Catholic friends. We need to talk about the Bible a little bit to make sure we're all talking about the same Bible, Um, because not everybody is. The Bible has 66 books. God has given us 66 books. He's given us 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. However, there's this thing called the Apocrypha which are these extra books that we as Protestant followers of Christ do not believe in, but the Roman Catholic church does. And I just want to make sure we address the elephant in the room with that, because that's an important thing to address. Um, a couple words on why that is, those books are not divinely inspired. First of all, it says so itself in the book of first Maccabees, it says, so there was a great distress in Israel. The worst since the time when prophets ceased to appear among them. So in first Maccabees chapter 9, verse 27, it's telling you that this is not a prophetic word. Also, the New Testament makes no reference to any of the books in the Apocrypha. Jesus, the apostles never do. And really interesting. Saint Jerome, he translated something called the Latin Vulgate, and he translated the Apocrypha. But he himself said, and I quote, "Not for the establishing of the authority of the doctrines of the Church." End quote. And here's the real kicker for me: the Roman Catholic Church actually didn't say they were part of the of the Bible until uh, 1546 during the time of the Reformation. So I'm like. That took quite a while for you guys to adopt those, and Jewish the Jewish people have never accepted them, have never accepted the Apocrypha as uh, books given to us by God. So, again, I know that's a lot of information. I can always send that to you if you have questions about that, but I just wanted to make sure we're talking about the same Bible. I know thus far it's been kind of a heady approach, um, but now let's jump in. What is the bible why do we why do we base our lives on it why is it our end all i'm going to break it down in seven letters the first one is that the bible is inspired so the letter i inspired it means god breathed Listen to what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 tells us, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. God-breathed. It's saying that all the scriptures, what we have, has literally come from the very mouth of God. He breathed it out. He exhaled it. Yes, it was written by, human, by men, but it's come from God through men is a better way to say it. The Holy Spirit directed the writing process of Scripture so that every word in every part of it in the original writings is exactly the very words of God. That's an amazing thing. Now That's not saying people were robots and that they kind of went into, some people think they went into a trance and just wrote. No, God used their life experiences, where they were living, their education levels, their, their, diff, their different writing styles. Paul's a, Paul had way better writing than Peter, for example. He uses all of that. And so they're writing it through their experience, but it's being directed by God, the Holy Spirit. Many writers, one architect. You think about if you were to go to a job site, you might have four or five construction workers, and they're not all hitting the hammer to the nail the same exact way, but they're putting them in the place they're supposed to be according to the blueprints. They're being directed by that blueprint. The Holy Spirit directed what the writers of Scripture were supposed to write. And so the reason that the Scriptures are, what the Scriptures being inspired means is when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Remember God exists outside of time. God does not change. So when you're reading your Bible, God is actually speaking to you. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that the word of God is living and active. This is why you can read the same I you can read the book of Colossians every day for a month and so, it, it seems as if there's always something new popping out. How many times have we read maybe Psalm 23 and it, there just seems something supernatural about it? Because God is speaking to us in and through that, his word. So that's the first word, inspired. The second word is also with the letter I. It's inerrant, meaning that the Bible is without error. It has no errors. Now, let me, What I mean, by no errors, That doesn't mean that there aren't words that are misspelled or commas missing, but it means in the truth and in what it's saying, it has no errors. That's a big difference. Peter might have misspelled, you know, he could have misspelled the word. He could have misspelled, I don't know, the, and he put two, you know, two H's or something. But it wouldn't have changed the truth of what he was saying. And so it's without error in the truth that it is communicating. Psalm chapter 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of Yahweh is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Notice there, the word of Yahweh is tried. It's tested. It's proved true. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. And since God is true, since God is without error, without fault, without sin, without, he's perfect in all that he is, that which proceeds from his mouth is perfect as well. That's why we can say the Bible is without error in its original manuscripts. So, what's our response to that? This means that everything that the means that the Bible is to believed in everything that it teaches, it's to be obeyed in everything that it requires, and is to be trusted in all that it promises. Because when all the facts are known and when the Bible is properly interpreted, it is without error and absolutely true. Again, a key component there is when it's properly interpreted. This is why the prosperity gospel is not proper, for example, doesn't properly interpret scriptures and perverts them. It speaks of financial prosperity when at times it's talking about spiritual prosperity. So we have to properly interpret the scriptures, but they are true in all that they say. This goes back to us having to put the work, the effort in. The next word is also with the letter I. It's infallible. And what that means is God's word never fails. Listen to this Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God is tested. And it doesn't fail. Listen to Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. It's perfect, it's sure, it's without error. If something's perfect, it has no fault. Or Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of Yahweh are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the ground refined seven times. It has no impurity in it. Let me put it this way. God delivers on everything he promises. Because God's word is infallible and can never fail, everything he promised, he delivers on both blessing and judgments. Here's a good example. Here's a good way to distinguish because sometimes the word inerrant and infallible get kind of confused. What's the difference between the two? Think about it this way. Um, A train schedule can be inerrant, but if the train arrives late, it's not infallible. So there was no error on the schedule that was written down, but the train arriving late means it failed to meet that standard. God's, God never has error. It never fails, always arrives on time, always delivers on his promises. Those three are extremely important. Those are bedrocks of the Christian faith and understanding the word of God. Now we get to what I think is my favorite one, because it's the one that I think we most need, and it's the sufficiency of scripture. God's word is sufficient. I'm going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, it says, that from childhood you've known that the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, let's let's break that down. We say that the word of God is sufficient. In an, it's sufficient for salvation. Look at verse 15. And from childhood, you've known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation. God's word is all you need for salvation. You don't need anything else. You don't need to perform you don't need any performances, you don't need good behavior, you don't got to do 50 good deeds you don't got to do anything. you just need to have faith in what God has declared in his word to be true about his son. The scriptures are sufficient for salvation. And the scriptures are sufficient to equip you for everything God calls you to look at verse 17 so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is nothing God has called you to that he hasn't equipped you for by his word. It is completely sufficient. It changes our very heart. Again, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 makes this same point. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and excellence. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. God's word is sufficient to save you and sanctify you. You need nothing else. You've been given everything you need in him. Okay, the next one about God's word is that God's word is also clear. It's clear. I hear people say often, the Bible is just too confusing for me to read. And I'm not trying to say that there aren't difficult sections of scripture. But the Bible is clear enough that what needs to be known to, reach, to be at a saving relationship with God is clear. Clear enough for a child. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. God wouldn't be commanding something that was incomprehensible to be surrounded by it. He's saying you should have the word of God everywhere that you are visible because it's clear enough to guide you. In Second Peter, again, chapter 1, verse 19, and we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We have as a more sure prophetic word that you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. It's clear enough that it can guide you as a lamp in darkness. And last, the last verse I want to draw attention to on this point is Psalm 119. Which you want to read, if you want to read a chapter of the Bible on the power of the word of God, it's Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is clear enough to guide you. Now, while it's true, we'll never know God's word fully and perfectly, we can know God's word truly and faithfully. And the clarity, the fact that the Bible is clear matters because if it wasn't clear, you wouldn't be able to know who God is or what he desires for you and is calling you to. And so I really want you guys to hear this. I, I know that I have a privilege that many don't, and that's that in this season of my life, which it wasn't always the case, I get to spend large amounts of my day in the Bible. I know that's an immense privilege. And so I know that because I get so much time to study, things can sometimes seem more clear to me than it could be for somebody else. And so I don't say this from a posture of of, of thinking that people aren't putting, I I get it. But I want you guys to know, I, I promise you that if you approach God's word prayerfully and with humility and dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and your heart is truly seeking to submit to God's word, you'll be able to understand it clear enough to grow in your relationship with God and grow in holiness. And that part, I'm very intentional saying, you have to approach the word of God prayerfully. It's a really good habit to pray before you read the Bible. Just don't barge in You're opening a supernatural book and so it would make sense that you need supernatural assistance to understand it. Psalm 119 verse 18, this is my, I pray this often before I preach. You'll hear me say this. I try to pray it every time I read. Psalm 119 verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. God has to open our spiritual eyes So that we can see spiritual truth. Unless the Holy Spirit does that, we're just going to be informed, but we're not going to be transformed. The word of God is clear, but it still requires the spirit of God that work in us. The word of God is also authoritative. When we talk about the Bible, it's authoritative. This is the one that upsets a whole lot of people in the culture. That's great that you believe in the Bible, but it's just not true for me. Here's the reality. Let me just put it this way. The authority of God's word doesn't mean it's only authoritative for the Christian. The authority of God's word is authoritative for every single person in the world, whether they believe in Jesus or not. God's word is the ultimate authority overall. Listen to what it says in John chapter 10, verse 35. John 10 35 reads. Jesus is having a conversation here, and he says, Let's start in verse 34 to give context. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are gods? If he called them gods, to whom were the word of God came, the scriptures cannot be broken. Do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? The reason I picked that verse is that Jesus is the Word of God, the Logos. We see this in, in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is speaking here. And he says that there, people are blaspheming against him because they're calling him the Son of God. Jesus. Is the highest authority. He is the Lord of lords. Because Jesus is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, because He is God, His word carries His authority. This is where people sometimes want to say, like, "Well, what do the red letters in your Bible say?" I want to know what Jesus said, not what Paul said. And to that person, I say, "Sorry, I think you're misunderstanding what's happening here." Genesis through Revelation is the word of God. It's all spoken by God. Red letters are not more important than the black ones. They all carry the same weight because they all come from the same God. We saw in 2 Timothy 3.16 that it was God breathed. Again, that's a claim to authority. We saw in John 17.17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is authoritative Because it comes from God himself, and there is no authority above God. To not believe or to disobey God's word is to not believe and disobey God himself. Let me repeat that. I really want you to understand the weight of this. To not believe or to disobey God's word is to not believe and disobey God himself. God's word is the final and highest authority in all the land. The highest authority in America is not the Constitution, it's the Bible. People may not submit to it, but there would be a day where they'll amend the meat of the Lord Jesus Christ. That also means that the Bible is the highest authority, not our ability to study and reason from the scriptures. The Bible's authoritative simply because of it comes from God, not because we're able to under, not even because we're able to understand it. And our last point, when we're talking about the Bible, is that it's necessary. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible's necessary. You need it. You need the scriptures. I've sometimes wondered what would happen if somehow I was never allowed access to the Bible again, to God's word again. And honestly, that terrifies me. I wouldn't know what to do. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it's talking about Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus is saying God's word is just as necessary, maybe even more necessary than the physical food that sustains your body. If you can if you would die without eating food, you die without spiritually without the word of God. It is absolutely necessary for your spiritual life. And this is why I'm so passionate and burdened that God's people are committed to reading God's book. Because I see I know and I see so many followers of Christ. Attend church on Sunday, love community, this and that. But they're starving to death. They're they're withering away to nothing because they're not feasting on God's word. Jesus says, "Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God." Are you spiritually healthy? Are you spiritually nourished? Are you spiritual? Are your spiritual? Are you spiritual vitamins deficient? Right. You know, we've seen during the pandemic that people that were vitamin D deficient were more prone to get sick with COVID. How many sins are you more prone to fall into because you're scripturally deficient? You haven't been intaking it in. It is absolutely necessary for us. Turn off your TV, turn off Netflix 20 minutes early before bed and just read or throw an audio Bible on and get it in. In your car, put an audio Bible on. You need it to live, to sustain, to be healthy. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. For whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news of good things. Do you realize the word of God is necessary for people to be saved? Think of the people in your life that are not saved right now, who do not have a relationship with Jesus and stand rightfully condemned before him. What they need in their life more than anything is the Word of God being proclaimed to them. It's necessary It's necessary, and if it's necessary for them to hear the Word of God and you're in their life, then it's necessary for you to know you to know the Word of God It's also necessary because. If we don't have the word of God dwelling richly in us, we're going to begin to develop a Christ from our own imagination. I'm just going to say it. That TV show, The Chosen, I won't watch it. Why? Because they've stepped outside of scripture and they've allowed their imagination to shape who the Lord Jesus Christ is. I can't watch it. It's necessary because if people don't know the word of God and stay close to it, you begin to see spiritual abuse in the church, spiritual abuse in the home. The word of God is necessary because if you don't have it, you begin to base your, your, your relationship, your faith on feelings and experiences, not on God's standard of truth. This is where our culture's at. This is why the most necessary thing for our, our country is a revival of the word of God. We don't need political figures. We need repentance and a return to the authoritative word of God. God's word is necessary. It saves us. It sanctifies us. It sustains us. It grows us. It reveals what's demanded of us. All of that can, none of that can happen if we don't have the word of God. So let me. Recap that part. Three eyes and the word scan. So I call it three eye scan. In- inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary. I actually write three eye scan in my Bible next to 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. It just reminds me. And so let me give you a couple points of application here, and then we'll wrap up. The Bible is our only, let me emphasize that, our only sufficient standard for the knowledge of God, for our faith and obedience. There is no other book. There is no fresh word. There are no experiences, dreams, or visions. None of that has any authority. The only sufficient standard of authority in your life for faith, obedience, and knowledge of God is his word. Second, the Bible is to be believed because it says so. You don't believe the Bible because you saw a Lee Strobel movie where he did some really good research, and you're like, wow, okay, it's historically historically accurate. That's helpful, sure, but that's not the basis on why you trust the word of God. You trust the word of God because it's the word of God, because it has proceeded from the mouth of God. That point is extremely important because I know a lot of people who say, well, okay, I've seen that there's historical evidence for the Bible and this and that. Okay, I'm going to believe. When you do that, you're putting God on trial. You're putting him on trial, on the stand. And who's the jury? The world, the evidence. Now, the amazing thing is God can win that case. But in the Bible, who's the only judge? God. So we believe the word of God because it has come from the mouth of God, not because of any of these other things. Those other things are great. They're encouraging, but they're not the basis of our belief. The word of God is sufficient for everything in your life. I really want you to think about your hardest struggle right now. The word of God is sufficient for it. You don't need anything else. You need God's word. The reason you need God's word is because it's in through God's word that you encounter God himself. The leather, the paper, the ink in the pages, there's nothing magical about this. But it is a window that allows you to, to a doorway, a door that brings you to God himself. And so the word of God is sufficient for everything in your life. Everything means everything, because it is God. It brings you to God. Next, Scripture interprets Scripture. There are some confusing things in the Bible. There's things I read and I'm like, what in the world did that even mean? You'll read stories and it's like he hacked up this woman and sent pieces of her to the twelve different tribes, and you're like, um how does that apply to my life right now? Like, I'm not supposed to go hack people up. Like, I don't know what's going on here. That can be confusing. Allow the, allow the confusing parts of scripture to be interpreted and explained by the clear parts of scripture. Let scripture interpret scripture. That's a good Bible study. Use your cross references. Extreme help there. And lastly, everybody has a standard. How do you determine what's right or wrong? What's good and what's bad, what's true, what's false, what's beautiful, what's ugly? It has to be God's word, but that's only going to happen with time. In Romans 12, 1, it says the renewing of the mind. Your worldview, your mind will be renewed the more you are in God's word. And God's word has to be the supreme judge and standard for judging all those things. When I first came to faith, there were things that I thought were okay. And as I was in God's word, more I began to see no, that's actually not okay. Some of them were silly, like I didn't think swearing was a big deal. Um my wife just had her eyes <laughs> bugged out. Um, but I swear I was at, I didn't think certain things mattered as much. But the more I spend time in God's word, the more I realize, you know, these things are important. And so God's word has to be the standard and the judge for everything. And you have to be in his word and allow that to, to renew your mind in those ways. So, I mean, I, this could have been like a six hour seminar or a multiple. So I know I give a lot of information. I will email all you those notes. Cause there's a lot there. Um, But let me end by reading one verse for us, which is Psalm 139, verse 17. Psalm 139, verse 17. And my prayer is that this verse will be ever increasingly more true for myself and for each one of you, especially as we go deeper into the study of doctrine. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. May his thoughts that are in his word be precious to us. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you now, and we thank you that we've had time for, uh, to gather and to study your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, that it's, we thank you that it is from your very mouth, that it is inspired by you, that it is without error, that it never fails, that it's sufficient for every need we have and all you call us to, that it's clear enough for a child to understand, that in a world with competing authorities, that your word is the highest authority. We thank you, Lord, that you show us that your word is absolutely necessary. We need it in our life. And so, Father, may these truths bolster our faith, ground us all the more, and I pray, Lord, that we would build our life on the sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessary nature of this word. We thank you that you are a speaking God, that you are not silent, and that your word brings light into darkness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. again. And um, let me pray for uh, all those we have that are currently not able to join because of sickness, and then we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in the glorious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Advocate, our King. Lord, we lift up Phil, who is Newly recovered from COVID, but still has some effects lingering, and this headache that has been plaguing him for the last couple of days has hit a climax point today. And it's knowing him for him to miss this evening; it has to be pretty bad. So we pray, Lord, that it's just a headache. That tomorrow he would be healed and from it, and that it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't linger. We pray for Carol also, Lord, who experienced a debilitating headache today. Uh, Carol's another one, Lord. We know that it has to be pretty significant for her to miss. We pray for her that it's just a headache and that it isn't one of the symptoms of COVID. Uh, we know that Carol has medical conditions, Lord, and so we just pray against that virus. And if it is in your will, if that is what you ordained that you would give her the strength and the health to get through it. Lord, be we ask that you would watch over her. Uh, we've been made aware that Susan and Matthew Uh, are currently battling COVID, Lord, and we praise you and we thank you that thus far it's simply the the worst symptom has just been uh, fatigue. Lord, we thank you that Lance has not gotten sick and so that he's able to care for them. We pray that you would strengthen Lance's hands in this time of service, that you would give him a joyful heart of servitude to his wife and to his son, that you would protect him from getting sick and that Susan and Matthew would recover quickly, Lord. I don't know if Tony's there or not, Lord, but I know that the roads are still bad. So if he isn't, Lord, we pray that you would watch over him on the roads uh, and that he would also get rest and stay physically strong and healthy. Go before us now, Lord, we ask. Holy Spirit, we are endeavoring to look at these vitally important doctrines of our faith. And we know, Lord, that we need to understand them rightly because to the degree that we understand rightly, we understand you rightly. And these can act as, as as walls to help strengthen and hold us up in difficult times. Doctrine is a powerful thing you give us. So may this not simply be an exercise in the mind, but a transformation of the heart. May the truths we look at be uh, spiritually exciting. And may you help us learn these truths and retain these truths. We commit this time to you now. In the powerful name of Christ, who one day we will see face-to-face. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So the way this series is going to break down, there isn't one specific like text we're going through. It is kind of a shotgun approach. There's going to be a lot of scriptures because the nature of the study, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, but let me let me begin by asking the question: What is your ultimate purpose in life? If you were to take a step back and just think this through. Which it's fitting we start this series at the beginning of a new year. What is your ultimate purpose in life? It's an important question. Because the way you answer the question of your purpose in life determines the trajectory of your life. It'll determine what you do and why you do it. What you don't do and why you don't do it. And a great place to begin to answer that question is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, we read these words. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus echoes these same words in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. And what it's saying here is that every person, specifically in Deuteronomy, that the people of God, Israel, were to love God with the totality of their being. And Jesus picking up on it is saying that those of us who by faith have trusted in him are to love God with the totality of our being. Our ultimate purpose is to love God with all that we are. But I'm not sure if you've ever thought about the fact that in order for us to faithfully pursue this loving of God, we it presupposes that we know something of God. That there is a knowledge of God we have because you can't faithfully love someone if you know nothing about them. So our primary pursuit in life should be an ever-increasing knowledge of God. If the purpose is to love him, then the pursuit is to grow in the knowledge of him. Now here's the thing. That's going to require effort on our part. I wish you could just go to sleep at night, wake up and boom, like you just downloaded all this doctrinal data It's just there, but that's not how it works. We have to put time in. We have to put effort in. We need to put in the work. And lest that sound burdensome, Every relationship requires effort to get to know the other person. And if you love the other person and if you're growing in love for the other person, it isn't a burden, but it's a blessing. You think of a young couple, you know you go to a college campus and and they'll sit till 2, three in the morning in the common areas. Ask, getting to know everything about each other. What's your favorite cartoon? What did you want to be when you grew up? How do you eat your cereal? And it, it, they just love it because they want to know the more they know, the more they love. And it's the same for us and the Lord. So we have to put in the work. We have to put in the effort, but it's not a, a duty that we do without joy. It's a privilege. But it's important. Listen to what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Do you hear that? Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. Give yourself to it. Persevere. This pursuit of your life to grow in the knowledge of God does not come without resistance. The world, the busyness of life, and your own sin is going to push against this pursuit, but we must be pursuing for this. You know, one book later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And so we see that as we're beginning this this glorious and long journey of the core doctrines, it's going to take effort on your part. And on my part, if we are truly going to be growing in our knowledge of God, it's going to take consistency. It's going to take grit. And so often we think our Christian life should just be like frolicking through a a field with beautiful flowers. It should just be, easy, but but Jesus calls it the narrow path. It's more like you're carrying a, 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 a rucksack on your back and you're marching a narrow path and it takes effort, but to get to that, the top of the mountain to get to the summit, it's glorious. It's worth it. So think about it more as hiking up a mountain face than walking, frolicking through a field. It takes effort, but the view is great. It's also going to require humility on our part. Studying God's word and understanding doctrine is humbling. It's humbling for a couple of reasons. One, the more you study doctrine, the more you realize how much you don't know about God. Your your assumptions of who God is are constantly going to be torn down. Like, I didn't realize that was who God was. I didn't realize that's what he did. I didn't realize X, Y, and Z. So it requires humility because you're, you're confronted with your, your small how small of a view of God you've had up to that point. There's another one, though. It requires humility because the more doctrine you learn, the more your pride wants to show it off. It's really easy to get smug. It's really easy to look at other people who maybe have a wrong doctrinal understanding and be like, look at them. How can you have that belief in God? Wow, do you even read your Bible? So it requires humility because anything we do properly learn of who God is through his word is because the spirit of God has graciously given us understanding. Proverbs 3 verses 5 through 7 tell us, trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. So I just want to make sure we get some groundwork there before we actually even look at this doctrine of the scriptures, that we understand that. And let me also say this. The study of doctrine is not simply an intellectual exercise. This isn't just data download for the brain. This is a spiritual act of worship. It requires a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to ask yourself as we start this series, is that your desire? Do you desire to grow in your knowledge of God? Not in your knowledge of theology. Not in your knowledge of doctrine, but in your knowledge of God. Learning these doctrines should only help to serve to know God for who he is. Don't ever, this is really easy, especially um, as sometimes people are exposed to certain reformed doctrines for the first time. It becomes really easy to fall in love with certain doctrines more than to fall in love with God. So we need to guard our hearts against this. It says in Psalm 73, verse 25, And this, I hope, is our, this is what I want to be kind of our our banner this series. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. This is the heart posture we need to take for what we're about to study. And I wanted to spend a lot of time here because the study of doctrine is glorious but dangerous. Lots of, having been in seminary myself and seeing what it did to me, to be honest, like my wife's online right now. And my wife would tell you, doctrine can destroy you if it's not bathed in prayer and humility. It can make you just a really arrogant individual. You can become a hammer and think everybody's a nail that you just want to hammer down with theology. The study of doctrine needs to lead to a devotion for God. I've seen that happen to a lot of young men in seminary after I graduated that I've worked with as well. Um, I've seen actually a lot of pastors be doctrinal theological giants and devotional raisins all dried up with no life. So let's make sure that doesn't happen for us. Let's, let's make sure we're praying the whole time we're in these studies, asking God to keep our hearts tender and our minds open. Okay, so let's let's jump in now. We're studying this first doc, this first week. Um, as we look at core doctrines, we're going to be looking at what's called special revelation. But before that, let me just define terms. I don't want to assume anything.